For those of you not aware, I actually uh, do a decent amount of research for this show. I've got the magazines, I've got the internet, I've got my three books I read right here, which I just have in a pile right next to me for when I do these ruminations. And occasionally I make mistakes. The, I want to explain this really quick because the reason I made this mistake is because I usually don't just look at one episode at a time. I'm usually, it's like I'm, as I'm working on one episode, I'm also finishing up work on the previous episode and starting work on the next episode. That's just my usual process. And I have to do that because I have so little time to work on YouTube while also working on the stream stuff. I mean, that's just time management. That's, that's what I've got, right? I'm not complaining. It's just a statement of fact. But I'm saying this because this is the first time I've caught myself actually making a mistake about this. Now, I've made a couple other uh, little snippets of mistakes here and there. But uh, last episode, I mentioned how Winrick Colby was, it was his first episode directing. That is actually incorrect. It was this episode, which was Chip Chalmers' first episode he was directing. He was the assistant director who was assigned the reins, not Winrick Colby. That's my mistake, and I wanted to acknowledge that openly. Now, considering that I do these well in advance, I just, I'm so looking forward to these 7,000 comments telling me of that mistake on the previous episode. But, you know, I still wanted to acknowledge this mistake in a, as if nobody ever called me on it because I did screw up. Moving on. Back in the day, there was a gentleman named Ira Stephen Bear who was still kind of getting started and, was, as I've mentioned before, was partially involved in TNG during Season 3 and eventually bowed out during Season 3. But this is the first episode that was handed to Ira Stephen Bear and said, all right, go ahead and give us an episode. What do you got? And he ended up working a little bit with Ronald D. Moore, and they came up with this episode. Now, before I say anything else... By memory, I didn't like this episode, and I'm going to talk more about that in a little bit, but I have to admit it was better than I remembered upon repeat viewing with analysis mode on. There are still some very gaping flaws and some weird awkward moments, and there's some weird chemistry issues, and just all sorts of stuff all over the place, but for the most part, it wasn't as bad as I remembered. But I mention that because you'd think that Ira Stephen Bear, who's a writer and a creator that I you know, respect, even though I don't agree with all his ideas, and Ronald D. Moore, who's a writer and creator I respect, even though I don't agree with all of his ideas, would be able to put together something awesome. Instead, they made this. Here's the funny thing, though. In my research, in my doing behind-the-scenes looks, I'm not sure where exactly it went wrong. See, the original story idea that they put together was so completely different from this that I can't even tell you about it properly because no one's talked about it in spe specificity. It's something about looking into the future, and it, it, was, it was mentioned in Chaos on the Bridge, which is another thing I recommend people uh, give a look at if they're interested in behind the scenes when it comes to Star Trek. Because, even though it's a heavily biased work, because the whole thing is, you know, we're going to have this thing and the, Picard's going to find a device and it will show them, you know, their greatest fears and blah, blah, blah. And, uh, okay. What's the episode, though? Like, don't tell me the whole episode is, and here's your greatest fear. Like, there's some, there's some stuff you can do with that, and the exploration of the characters, but that just kind of seems vacuous to me. They were told no on that story idea, and two other things kind of got involved. First of all was the, the idea of this pleasure planet. Now, at this point in time, Roddenberry functionally was not actually in charge of the show. He was... He was basically a stamper. Now, I don't know what the proper term is, and I don't care right now, but the idea is it's someone whose job it is to go kunk and approve ideas or to suggest ideas. But their suggestions are exactly that, suggestions, not orders. And the stamp they give is just basically allowing, allowing things to happen without any niggling details. If, if, for example, Roddenberry said no about something, the other actual creators and producers and executives in charge could overwrite him if they wanted to. 
he had no real power on the show. But he was still Gene Roddenberry and still had some influence. So what they, uh, Roddenberry really liked the idea of Riza, and he really wanted to push that. So that kind of got brought back in. And they had decided, and I say they very vaguely, because I haven't been able to figure out exactly who really made this determination, but several people had decided the idea that time travel, I know at least Michael Piller and Rick Berman were involved in this, uh, was cool. Like, we're okay using time travel in TNG. If you're paying attention, there hasn't actually been a lot of time travel in Star Trek in general at this point in history. We have, like, a couple episodes back in the TOS, and then we have uh, Voyage Home, Star Trek IV, and other than a few little loopy kind of things, for the most part, there hasn't really been any actual time travel up until yesterday's Enterprise, which was the first real time travel episode, or at least that's the way it was being thought of at the time. This, of course, can be debated by us geeks and nerds as much as we'd like to. The point is, this kind of opened the gasket on time travel stories for good and for bad. Uh, I once pulled up a list of all the time travel when it came to Star Trek, and it's an interesting list because it's astonishing how much of it happens in Voyager and Enterprise and not the previous shows, but I'm getting off topic a little bit. The point being, they wanted to push time travel and this pleasure planet, and so they kind of just forced together, Moore and Iris Stephen Bear forced together this script, which is Captain's Holiday. Now, this is not a good episode in my opinion. It, it just has too many flaws to really be called that, and too many issues with getting in the way of its enjoyment. But I do want to give credit to Chip Chalmers, as I said, actually, my mistake, actually first director. He does a lot of interesting stuff. Probably my favorite little tidbit, and I know this is a very minor point, but I wanted to point it out, is towards the beginning of the episode, uh, Picard and Riker are talking in the turbo lift, and Riker pushes his back to the door. Then the cut, sh the, the scene shifts to a shot from down, like down the lower area of the bridge. We see the door open, Riker's back is there, he com they finish their conversation, and then he walks out of the door. It's a really minor thing, but he did several things with nice transitions like that that I enjoyed. I just wanted to give credit for that where credit is due. Also, I feel so bad for Data. I've actually talked many times about this recently, not on this show, uh, over on the stream stuff, uh, about the idea of the difference between live action versus animated slash CGI when it comes to television. And this is a perfect example of that. I'm going to use this in the future when that comes up again. Brent Spiner had to do a makeup call and a makeup check and get up at X out in the morning in order to come there and sit there and poke at his screen and not actually have any lines because Data was there. Anywho, <clears throat> I'm going to talk about one other thing, and I don't want to, but I have to. It's my job. Now, I've spoken ill of Gene Roddenberry several times. I've also spoken praise of Gene Roddenberry several times. I am not for him or against him. I just want to acknowledge all aspects of his personality and his influence on Star Trek and his, his perspective as a person. I know that sounds strange, but you can be both for and against something at the same time. Weird, I know. But I might mention this because apparently Roddenberry really wanted, and this, this, there's several sources re re uh, reporting on this, so I think this is reasonably true, really wanted there to be several, and I quote, graphic, uh, graphic demonstration of sexual intimacy in the background and the implication that they go to have sex. And it was specifically homosexuals, women and women, men and men. Now, to be clear, based on the time, based on the, uh, the terminology and based on what it's thing, the idea is probably that these people were snuggling or holding hands or kissing or whatever, and then they, they'd, you know, pick, pick each other's hands up and go walk off camera, and, you know, the implication would be there. I'm not talking about straight-up pornography or anything like that. The funny thing is, 
apparently both Iris Stephen Bear and Rick Berman were like, whoa, uh, no. <laughs> and uh, Iris Stephen Bear has, has commented in his interview about this that he was like, how am I going to tell, what do I say to this guy? How am I going to tell him there's no way in hell that the censors will actually allow that on the show? What am I supposed to do? This goes back to what I mentioned about Roddenberry having no real power, by the way. So instead they kept in Ryza and just kind of cut that out. Instead we get about 24 seconds, yes I counted, of basically a long camera shot and a woman in a bikini and then a cut up to, to a guy and a girl who are making out and, you know, oh my god, we're totally going to have sex later. And that's about it as far as the pleasure planet. Now, <clears throat> I don't have much to discuss about that. Obviously the, the thing is, I am both for and against that. And I want to explain my opinion very succinctly. Because I'm for the idea that they were totally cool with whatever gender, with whatever, whatever. That there was no judgment on the matter. It was just supposed to show that kind of thing. Okay. You know, I'm, I'm with that. What I'm against is them showing it at all, regardless of the genders involved. But not just because I'm anti-romance. as I have that wonderful uh, perspective of... Oh yeah, by the way, this is a romance episode, so I'm looking forward to that. <sighs> no, it's not that. Although it is related to that. See, the problem here, for me, is not the fact that two people want to go have sex. The, fact, the problem is not even the fact that they want to titillate when it comes to Star Trek. Again, sexy has always been an aspect of Star Trek. Whether I like that or not, it is still true. But, <laughs> you knew there'd be a but coming. Uh, especially when it comes to Star Trek, sorry, sorry. But, my problem is with Ryza. See, the thing is, Ryza has three episodes across Star Trek. Functionally five, or excuse me, technically five, but functionally three. There's three Ryza episodes on Star Trek. There's this one, there's Let He Who Is Without Sin on Deep Space Nine, and there's One Night and Whatever over on Enterprise. And all these episodes kind of suck. Every single one of them. And I don't know if that's coincidence or not. I haven't actually gotten to the other two episodes yet in my rumination analyses, so we'll see what I think of them when I get there. But having gone back through this episode, I my opinion has been reaffirmed on this one, uh, specifically about Ryza, not about the episode itself, because Ryza is Disneyland. Now, I want to explain what I mean by that very quickly. If you want to go enjoy roller coasters or rides, there are places and theme parks you can go to that have interesting, fun, and exciting roller coasters and rides. Those places are not Disneyland. Disneyland, Disneyland has, like, rides light. You know, they're kind of interesting. The lines are way too long for the level of quality because the rides themselves are just not that interesting. Oh, and yes, I've been to Disneyland many times, including when I was a kid and as far as when I was an adult. I mean, this, this, I've been to Disneyland a lot, so I, I feel like I can actually have this opinion here. Disneyland also has food that isn't that great, that is too expensive. And Disneyland has this sort of presentation thing going on. Trying to make it look like this big, wonderful, amazing place, when really, it isn't. Now, don't mistake me. Disneyland's fun, and I like going to Disneyland. There's a reason I've been so many times in my life. I look forward to taking my niece someday. But the fact is, Disneyland is still the kind of place that isn't the most amazing place ever. It's trying to pretend like it is. Does that make sense? Am I making my parallel clear here? Because the idea is that Ryza is the pleasure planet. And as a consequence, it comes across as, like, a high schooler's pleasure planet. You know what I mean? It doesn't quite nail it the way it should. It... <clears throat> 
To put this into other terminology, one of the things that has always bothered me most about Ryza, and I, I know I ranted about this during the Star Trek Online lore run, is that it's apparently everyone presumes that the pleasure on Ryza is all sex-related. Not sex itself, but, you know, sensual massage or sensual activities or making out or sex or Jamaharon. Oh, yeah, that's another fun one. Just for the hell of it, I decided to look up Jamaharon for the course of this rumination to see if they ever finally gave a definition to the word. They haven't. It's some kind of sex ritual, and that's all they say about it. Okay, that's cute. You, you, you came up with another word for sex. Um, we have a word for that, too. It's called sex. <laughs> we don't need to come up with some stupid word to show how... <sighs> I'm sorry. It, I, I'm probably not even getting across my point. It's like if you rewound time to when I was 13, and you asked me to write a pleasure planet... And I'd be like, oh, man, sex everywhere. Okay, that's not fair. I was actually 11 at the time. But the point being, you know, that's, that's what you'd get from that, right? It doesn't have any depth to it. It's just a Sunday. Actually, even that's not fair. It's like, it's like a Kit Kat. Now, I'm not saying Kit Kats are necessarily bad. But the problem is they present it as if this Kit Kat is a full Sunday. As if it's this big, massive, amazing treat of awesome. No, it's just a Kit Kat, guys. It's just a Kit Kat. There's nothing wrong with enjoying a Kit Kat, okay? There's nothing wrong with enjoying a Snickers bar. However, don't try to pretend it's anything more than a Snickers bar. It, it aggravates me how much Star Trek tends to be like, Ooh, Ryza. They go there and they have sex. Okay, I get it. I don't care. <laughs> sorry, sorry. I want you guys to help me out with this one, please. I should have started with this, but I, I got upset. How many... I want you to think about going to a planet that is a recreation planet. And I'm going to use that word because I think it's a better word than pleasure planet. But I want you to think about going to a recreation planet where you can just relax and have fun and do whatever you want, within reason, obviously. I want you to do me a favor and think of how many activities that are not sex or sex-related that you would enjoy doing on Ryza. As if it actually, as if there's an actual place you could go to vacation on. Remember, obviously, this is the introduction of Ryza into the franchise, but as we learn over the course of it, Ryza's basically been part of the, the galactic community and the Federation in general before the Federation even existed. This is a long-standing planet whose entire pur pur purpose is basically tourism. There's nothing wrong with that, of course. But again, how many things can you think of that they could have gone and done here that aren't sex, that you would have wanted to do? I could think of several dozen things just off the top of my head. I'm not going to bore you with them, don't worry. And that's kind of my problem, is that it's all, every single episode is all focused on the, ooh, ooh. DS9 is much worse about this, admittedly. Let he who is without sin, by memory, just slathers it on. But even this episode has women walking around with these... So what they did... This is actually funny. The women actually have a bottom bikini on and then a see-through vest and nothing else. Oh, don't worry. They're not actually nude because underneath the vest, which is actually taped to the, the plastic they're working, they have like this pseudo-plastic mold which is actually covering their chest, which is skin-colored. So they are wearing something and then they have the see-through vest on it. But they did that just to kind of continue with the vibe. I like attractive women, too, but you don't need to shove it in my face so hard, literally and metaphorically. 
Which brings me to another point, if I might be so bold. I, I don't want to mention this here, even though it's later in the episode. Why is Picard sitting out amongst everyone when he's enjoying his book? I know that sounds like a strange statement, but you can't tell me that an entire resort planet has no other places for Picard to go. <laughs> There's no That he can't go another hundred feet that way or 30 meters that way in order to get away from the hubbub. Instead, it looks like he's in the middle of, like, the downtown, like, everyone's there, everyone and their kids is there kind of an area, with people splashing around and people constantly talking and titillating and interacting. And Picard insists that he wants to read his book Alone in the Sun. And you know what? That actually sounds kind of relaxing to me. That sounds enjoyable. So why isn't he doing that? Funnily enough, a much, much later episode of Voyager would call out Tuvok for doing this exact same thing on purpose. Except in Tuvok's case, he was doing it because it was part of his his particular social dance. Whereas in this case, I feel like Picard really does want to be alone, and he just does not seem to cognate how to do that. <sighs> Anyways... There's a weird parallel in this episode. The episode begins with Picard going, eh. And then the episode ends with Picard going, uh-huh. Now, I have to admit, I, I remembered the, eh, for years, even before I watched this episode. I knew that scene because it was so indicative of just how surly Picard had become. He is outright actively rude to Riker in that scene in a way that I would consider socially un unacceptable, especially on the bridge of the, the, the Enterprise. At the very least, there would have been a little curt, like, you know, not now. No, no, later. You know, something other than just, eh. But I bring that up because we just had an episode. In fact, we've had several episodes now where Picard is replaced or controlled by something else where he's acting unusually. And arguably he's acting more unusually here with that than he is in other circumstances. But it's okay because we have an excuse for it, so we're not going to look into it. Now, I have to admit... I mentioned how I liked this episode more than I thought it would on repeat viewing. A lot of that comes down to the beginning of the episode, before he gets to Ryza. And I can't believe I'm saying that, but the episode made me laugh several times, out loud. I actually had to knock at the door like, Are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, I'm watching Star Trek. Because, first of all, Crusher approaches him, who is not only his doctor, but functionally his best friend, who probably knows him better than anyone else other than Q. And Crusher, the way Crusher approaches him is great. And the way she approaches the whole thing is great. And there's a great, just a, the whole scene just clicks. The way she's like, no, oh, and he's, he's refusing this, and he's doing this, and it's horrible. And Picard, of course, picks up on it. He says, look, what, what would you have? And she's like, no, you need to actually take a relaxation, a vacation. And I, I really liked how it all slid together. And, of course, he understands that she means this seriously, and she, of course, understands why he's pushing back on this. You'll notice she basically stops pushing him after a certain point because she understands him. She has posited the idea, and she's mentioned why she thinks it's relevant, and he has admitted that he will put serious thought into doing something about it. And you know what? I liked that. It was a very nice character moment between the two. And if nothing else, <laughs> if nothing else, that was really some good chemistry, and I want you to remember that for later. 
Then Riker comes on board. I already mentioned the scene earlier when I praised the directing. And Riker says, hey, Riza, it just happens to be nearby. What a coincidence. And we should go ahead and try that out. Oh, no, of course. I will never talk about it again. And then Troy says, hey, my mother's showing up. And I admit, I'm just sitting here like, wow, guys. I kind of like their approach, though. Because they start, as, as you should, you start as politely and privately. You know, Crusher goes into his ready room. Little intimate, you know, friend-to-friend kind of a thing. Listen, I think you should do this. And she approaches it very diplomatically. Then Riker approaches it semi-diplomatically, but a little more forcefully. Like, this is, I think, what you should do. Then they start bringing in the big guns with Troy's assertion. And then it's like, okay, okay, fine, fine. Whatever. I'll make this happen. Um, and I also happen to love, just really quick, the bit that Worf says I would feel more secure in assigning security. Now, the thing is, on the face of it, that's a Worf is uptight kind of a joke. Ha ha ha. But on retrospect, especially so soon after Sins of the Father, remember, that was just two episodes ago, I have to admit, oh, actually, and one episode after Allegiance, when the captain was kidnapped, I have to admit that this actually works better even though I don't think it was intended, as Worf basically caring in his own way. Crusher tried her own thing. Riker tried his own thing. Troy tried her own thing. This is Worf trying his thing. This is Worf's way of showing that he really does give a damn about Picard and demonstrating that to him in a rather uh, significant way. So then uh, Vash shows up, and then Sovak shows up. I'll talk more about them in just a second. And uh, then there's then you know there's the cut and then there's the twenty oh excuse me it's twenty six seconds I apologize I did write it down twenty six seconds of panning and here's my note about why is Picard not off by himself uh, and then there's the Horgon which for the longest time we actually uh, me and my friends called the Horgon because that's the way it's spelled Horgon but um, I just don't know why I shared that <laughs> I always share little tidbits do you guys like that do you dislike that. I imagine, actually, the answer is both, because I have a fairly wide audience for these Star Trek ruminations, so... I apologize if it bothers you. That is not my intent. I just... It's kind of the way I talk in real life, which is how I talk to you guys. It's just I'm talking to a camera rather than a person. Anywho. A very, very silent person. It's strange. You can talk to me! It's all right! So... Then they talk about Jamaharon. I've already ranted about that. I'm not sure I really need to rant anymore, but I do want to say one more thing about it, just really, really quick. I have nothing wrong with the idea of the Horgon or the Jamaharon. What I want to know, and I don't think they ever discussed this, is is that a cultural thing or an economic thing? And as weird as this may sound, from a detached intellectual perspective, I find that question very interesting. Because you could argue that the Rhysians, as a culture, as a society, have the norm of sexuality being open and free and normal. I'm guessing these people never had to encounter STDs. And I'm guessing that that's just kind of a part of their culture. That's the way it's usually presented, after all. And thus they have this little thing that you can go ahead and present. And this is basically the way of... This is you fluffing your plumage, right? It's, it's bypassing all the things. How many times have you gotten in your best suit, you know, got the tie, made sure your hair is all, well, I don't have any hair, but, you know, made, made sure your hair is all straight, and made sure you're all shaven here, and you got a little cologne going, you know, got a little cologne, and make sure you got your nice pants, a nice belt, and you put on those, those new, uh, 
I can't remember what they're called right now. The things that go here that I don't actually have for these because I have no need of them. You know, it made sure you looked your nice and your best, and then you went out to a bar or to a movie theater or out with a friend who was bringing some other friends. Basically, you are demonstrating that you are looking, right? Now, I can only speak personally being a guy, but I have, to I have been told from many of my female friends and family members that the same thing applies on the female side of the gender. That you try to dress nice, and you touch up your hair, and you maybe put a little bit of makeup on, or maybe put a lot of makeup on, or whatever it is your preference is. Basically, dressing yourself up to show that you are looking. That's a thing. No judgment. No anything. It's just another way that we communicate in a nonverbal manner, right? So I like the idea, as weird as this may sound, that the Rhysians have developed to the point where rather than presenting themselves in a different manner, they just have an object. And they just put out that object. And that object basically says, I'm looking. It's a nice little tidbit. But see, here's the thing. Picard actually mentions that he purchased that. I'm not even getting into how many times people in Starfleet mention money or purchasing things, given the economics of the future. I don't, I don't even want to get into that. It's so inconsistent. Let's just be honest with ourselves. It's just inconsistent. I mean, even in this episode, uh, Vosh mentioned she was going to sell the Toxu Thought to the Daystrom Institute, in Daystrom, Daystrom Institute, which is a Federation Institute, which shouldn't have money. But anyways, anyways, point being, Picard mentions that he buys the Horgon, and several other times uh, it's brought up, it's mentioned as an item you can purchase, which brings me to the economic side of things. Now, you might say there's no functional difference between these two, because the idea is, rather than it being uh, something that they have developed as part of their culture, their society over time, rather that they developed it as a business tactic, that they, they basically decided, or one company decided, this is the Horgon, and just picture the ads, put out the Horgon, let everyone know you're in the mood, you know, something like that. And as a, as a business and an economic decision, they decided to sell and market this thing as the device that you did to show that you were looking. I mean, it's not that hard of a stretch considering how many, I mean, how many times have you seen a makeup ad or a cologne ad or a body wash ad or any other things that would also be implied in the looking thing that we as humans do, right? So, of course, considering that Rice's main, I guess the word I'm looking for here is export, is tourism, it would make perfect sense, I know that doesn't quite apply, it would make perfect sense that they want people to buy these horgons specifically so that they can then be shown as doing that. And I don't even mean this in a duplicitous manner, it's worth noting. It's not like they hire women or men to go around and screw with people who have horgons, it's just they have turned the horgon into an economic business model and enforced it as the method by which you show I am looking. If you want a real-life parallel, De Beers, Diamonds. And that's all I'm going to say about that because I can't say much more without spitting in rage. Right? It's interesting, isn't it? It's one of the most interesting aspects of the episode to me. And I know that sounds incredibly geeky and stupid, but there you go. Culture and economics are two things I love very much, so what do you want from me? Regardless. <laughs> so then there's the Horgon and the Jamaharon, which means sex. Let's just all get that out of the way. <sighs> then Max Grodenchik shows up. Now, real quick... I like Max Grodenchik. This is actually his first time on Star Trek right here. Uh, he will be showing up one other time in um, The Perfect Mate, I believe. I'm not actually sure. That's off the top of my head. As another random Ferengi before he finally settles in as Rom over on Deep Space Nine. But as I've always said, I've always had a soft spot for Max Grodenchik. Uh, he and um, 
oh god, I can't think of his name, Armin Shimmerman, are pretty much the two quintessential Ferengi in my mind, since they both kind of show... Between the two of them, you see most of what the Ferengi are, in a nuanced way, no less. Now, most of that's over on Deep Space Nine, but the point remains. So, he doesn't bother me as much as he, his character should, because he presents himself in a way that makes his antics entertaining, even though they shouldn't be. I actually, several scenes, I basically did that thing where I take myself out of the moment, divorce myself from the character and the visuals and the presentation of the dialogue, and just listen to the words on the page, and he's an irritating little twat. But Grodenchik manages to salvage that, so... Hmm. Either way, I decided to ca count it up. This is the fifth appearance of the Ferengi, ever. And as I mentioned back in The Price, The Price was basically the beginnings of the transition of the Ferengi away from the bad guys. They had failed at the bad guys in, excuse me, in these three episodes. Uh, let's see, Last Outpost, The Battle, and God, I can't remember the third one. But anyways, um... They, they, they failed at making the Ferengi a threat. So then they had the price, which was trying to transition them into something else. And they kind of started doing the slapstick route. This episode is, in my opinion, the moment at which the creators decided to make the Ferengi a joke. Because Max Grodenchik, in many ways, is written... Excuse me, I'm saying... Max Grodenchik's the actor. Sovak is, in many ways, written to be villainous. He is, he's, he's Bella, or Bellic, or whatever his frickin' name is, from Indiana Jones, right? And in, he's, he's got a gun, he's willing to kill Picard. He holds, he threatens them at gunpoint later and forces them into servitude. I mean, this, this is the actions of a fairly morally deprived individual. And yet, the way he's presented, you can kind of tell that they just sort of abandoned that and decided to make him a joke, because he's a non-threat. He is functionally the least villainous of the villains in this episode. And I include Vosh in that group. So, I, it is my opinion that this is the official moment that the creators, whether the writers or the producers or the directors or whatever, officially decided, we're done. The Ferengi are a joke. And that would be what the Ferengi would be until Deep Space Nine, see, you know, several years later. Anywho... Um, so I mentioned here, poor Picard. The guy just wants to go and relax. Now, if I might offer a personal perspective, just really quick. Uh, some of my viewers think I have an aversion to vacations, and, and, or, and that's kind of true. But it's mostly because a vacation is just a way to ensure that you're even more stressed when you come back, right? Like, uh, it's, it's, in, it's not in my mindset to be able to enjoy a vacation, because I can't. Because I know that when this vacation ends, I'll be coming back to even more work than I left. Because I'll be behind. It's not that I want to work, you know, ten hours a day, seven days a week. It's that I basically have to. Now, I mention that because the idea of, like, being able to just relax. Like, if there was the availability of just freezing time for a bit. And just taking a few days and just really relaxing. I refer to what I said earlier. Sitting in the sun, enjoying a good book by myself. That sounds nice. You know, maybe listening to the water on the on the beach. I, I used to love the beach. I was actually born and raised mostly on the beach, uh, all up and down the western coast of the United States. So I, I, you know, I'm with that. That sounds awesome. And yet, poor Picard. He's just sitting there, and first he gets splashed, and then, well, no, actually, first women keep coming up to him, trying to come on to him. Oh, what a hassle! And then he gets splashed, and then another woman comes up and explains what's going on with the Horgan. And then Sovak comes over and uh, overtly threatens him. And then Vosh comes over and bothers him. And then he goes back to his room and the Vorgons are there. This poor guy can't catch a break. 
but it is, of course, worth noting. And this is one of the point where I think the episode does manage a nice subtlety. Relaxation does not mean the same thing to everyone equally, right? In other words, by the end of the episode, it's clear Picard did enjoy his stay. But not because he was just sitting out reading a book the whole time, even though he probably would have enjoyed that too, but because he got to do something that he enjoyed because he enjoyed it. He got himself wrapped into this. And I kind of like that. But anyway, anyways. So, then the Taksu thought, so, it's a little device that stops all fusion in a star. What the hell? <laughs> Later on, Soren would be able to manage something like that, and it would actually be the main plot of a movie, but... Wow! Okay. Um, I'm not even going to talk about that in specific, although I do have to say, re-watching this episode, having gone through all of STO to date, was very interesting. I don't want to spoil too much, but all I'm going to say is, for those of you who haven't played STO or watched my lore run of it, there's an entire story arc that has to do with the Vorgons, and that's all I'm going to say about that. It's a time travel story arc. Anywho. So, I want to comment on one thing really quickly, because I was asked to. Earlier on, Vosh is wearing this weird one-piece black bikini, which does not look, okay, in my opinion, does not look good on her. I'm not trying to shame or anything like that, it just it didn't look like an attractive outfit. Almost immediately after this, she shifts into this outfit where she's got these uh, brown pants, like, I don't know what to call it, and like a white uh, fold-over shirt. I forget the proper terminology of all this stuff because I don't know fashion that well. And that looked much better on her. She looked far more attractive to me in that outfit than the previous one. And I mention that because, well, that kind of goes back to what I was talking about Ryza. This is why I was asked to comment on this, because I made the comment that I I thought Vosh looked more physically appealing in the second outfit than the former. And that got into a discussion, and we talked back and forth, and I mentioned my complaints about Ryza, and she wanted me to mention this regarding the Ryzean thing, because the idea is, it's easy to just wear little. That's easy. All you do is wear less clothing, and you show off more skin. But in my opinion, too much of fashion, and this isn't just a recent thing, but this has been going on for at least the last 40 years or so, um, too much of fashion thinks, especially in fiction, thinks that sexy means more skin. But no actual thought or effort is put into polishing that or designing that in a way where it actually looks appealing. To be completely blunt, and you know, I'm sure I'm going to get tons of negative comments about this, but I think several of the original series outfits designed by the legendary fashion designer whose name I don't remember, please forgive me, were far more physically appealing, you know, sexy, than ones where they actually had more skin showing. Andrea the Android is a great example. I can think of that right off the top of my head. She didn't actually have a lot of skin showing, mostly just her sides. But the way it was designed to conform to her and to actually make it look that it was appealing to her, the person wearing it, feels like it was something that was actually specifically crafted rather than just thrown together. And this is kind of my point about Ryza in general. Ryza feels like it takes the shortcut to sexiness. In other words, sure, you could just walk up to them and say, hey, flash, let's go have sex. But that's not going to be titillating to everyone. In fact, I would argue that's not titillating at all. That's just blunt. That's just cutting through all the, the, the interesting parts and getting straight to the moment, right? There's a reason for, uh, foreplay and build-up exists. It's, it's not just to get you in the mood. It's because that's part of the enjoyment. And thus, Ryza seems to do exactly that. Hey, sex! Well, what? 
What about what about inter interplay? What about interactions? What about closeness? What about those little moments of excitement when you're when you're maybe but kind of or hesitant but not sure and maybe later, you know, anticipation? No, 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 sex. And I think that's another thing that I dislike about Ryza in general. I really hate talking about this episode. I hope you guys know that. I have a headache right now too. That's the best part. So I'm in a bad mood in addition to that. Uh, I'm not kidding. Or I'm, I mean, I am kidding, but. Headache, neck pain. I actually don't have much to say about the rest of the episode. I do have one other big thing to complain about, though. So, they beat up Max Grodenchuk, <laughs> Sovak, and then Picard grabs his gun and just tosses it over the fence. Now, first of all, that is amazingly uh, unsafe and unsound of a thing to do. Oh, it's a gun. Fling. And ignoring the fact that he could turn that in or keep it for himself or do basically anything else with it whatsoever. But no, he decides to just toss it over a fence and never think about it again. Second point. Why do they have to walk to where they're going? Like, it's, it's stated to be around 20 clicks away. And it's about a two-day journey overall. That's a long trip to hike. Now, maybe that's part of the enjoyment, and that could be a valid answer, but they never address this. Instead, they just kind of go there. I mean, doesn't Ryza have the floaters? The, the jetpacks? Yeah, I know that's only an STO, but goddammit, I'd like to think they have jetpacks on the Pleasure Planet. That just makes sense. It's a tourist planet. Of course they have jetpacks. Anyways. But no, like, don't they have shuttles? Don't they have transporters? Don't they have anything else, like a camel they could use to get there? No, they've got to go on foot for some reason. I, eh, whatever. There are ways to explain that, but again, the, the episode makes no effort to try. Which brings me to my next point. Obviously, they only have camping gear for one person. Why? <laughs> again, it shouldn't see, it, it doesn't seem like it would be that difficult to just go and, as they obviously have the currency to do so, just purchase a second sleeping wear thing. You know, I, I hesitate to call it a sleeping bag because it's basically just a, a freaking blanket that's on the ground and then a blanket that they wear on top of that. But it's funny because we know the reason why they have a, a bedding situation for one person. It's so that the two people have to sleep in the same bed. And it's so goddamn forced. And I hate that scene. Not because I think Vosh is unattractive. Not because I think Picard should be Kennedy, not because I'm against romance, and not because I'm against physic physical intimacy or anything else like that, but because of the fact that the entire scene is awkward and forced. And this brings me back to my point I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, chemistry. Vosh and Picard, in this episode, have zero chemistry. And I'm not sure why. It's not like Patrick Stewart isn't a very charismatic actor. It's not like, I can't remember her name, does a bad job of as an actress. But neither of them click at all in this episode. And even if you look at the characters, you can see how they would fit together. They have their mutual love of archaeology, which is a great way to push them together. And they have completely differing ways about how they approach that love. She is far more mercenary, and he is far more <sighs> federation, to put that as nicely as I can. And it, 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 it's telling that towards the end of the episode, she mentions she was going to give the talk to thought to the Daystrom Institute, but she was going to sell it to the Daystrom Institute rather than give it. And he just gets this sort of disappointed look on his face. That right there says everything that needs to be said about the difference in the two's mentality. Because 
for me, I see absolutely nothing wrong with having put the amount of time and effort she has into this, selling it to the Daystrom Institute and getting whatever she needs out of this in order to help recompense her for the last five years of her life, never mind what she needs going forward. But Picard's like, oh. But, but I'm not saying that as a bad thing. Quite the contrary. It's the one interesting interplay between the two characters. And yet there's just nothing there. I don't know. I got nothing. Uh, so then they have the Code 14 thing towards the end. That's cool. I like that. And then they bring up the time travel. And, oh yeah, that reminds me. The time travel is kind of stupid in this episode. The way this episode posits it is as if this is type 1 time travel, which, for those of you who don't remember, is the time as a linear line type of time travel. In other words, everything that always happened always will happen, including time travel. So, in other words, the Vorgons always went back and always got inter interfered and always failed to get the talks you thought, right? Now, that's fine, but then right at the end of the episode, Picard just has this line that just feels shoved in for no reason about... They have time travel. They might be back to do this again. And it's just... What? <laughs> and in fact, the episode never addresses that. Because it's a valid point. The Vorgons are time travelers. Now, the episode does establish something in the cold open, that they don't have precise time travel. So maybe it's not within their ability to actually precisely time travel here. And as we learn much, 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 much later, the Vorgons are actually part of the Temporal Cold War, which had certain restrictions and limitations on the amount of time travel and the specificity of time travel you could do. And there's a reason the, cult, the Temporal Cold War went hot and blah, blah. But all that's like fan stuff, basically. That's all part of STO and, not, and Enterprise, not part of TNG. As is, it's just like, okay, why did you even bring that up? Because it's basically like the writer turning the turning to the audience and saying, hey, here's a giant plot hole. And then the, the, the screen changes to the next scene. I do not get that. But anyways, that's all I got. That's all I've got. I did like this episode more than I thought I would, but I still think it's a bad episode. Just like all their other Ryzen episodes. We'll see what happens in the future. Otherwise, I'll see you guys next time.